Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest podcast, this one being for November 2017. I'm going to start this month by chatting to you about online magic learning. Now, um, obviously, from my own perspective, I've had my own eClub Pro available now for seven years. I first started my online learning club back in January 2011, and it's grown exponentially over the years to be now a resource that boasts over 700 pages of content, much of which is video. And when I first started this, I did it because I felt that there was a need amongst magicians that they could learn, no matter where they were in the world, they could learn from, hopefully from the experiences that I'd had and the information I could pass on, but that it would be somewhere where they could come and cherry pick the elements that they want from the resource. So for some, it might be just tricks. For others, it will be advice. For others, it will be personal help from me with whatever magical problem they might have. And it's been a formula that's worked very, very well. At that time, I, I, I don't know that there were, hard, there were hardly any other similar types of things available. But I've noticed that in recent times, there's been a mini explosion of online learning experiences. And the latest two that I've noticed, um, one is from Illusionist, which is called Magic Stream. And the other is Alakazam's Online Magic Academy. Uh, th these are both quite interesting because they are offering... Uh, much more, I think, from what I can judge from the publicity, more of a of a live learning experience, because for them they feel that and having something that's very immersive, very interactive, is the way to go. eClub Pro is not interactive, and and it's not interactive for a number of reasons. But the main one is that I think trying to get people to, if you like convene at a particular moment in order to take part in a live lecture is very difficult. If you're having an event where people pay for a ticket to go in and they travel to the venues like the Blackpool Convention or the session in London in January, people buy a ticket, you, you have to turn up at that specific time in order to take part in it because that's when it's happening. And because you invest money in it, you invest a ticket to get yourself if it's on a train or in some cases people fly in. So a plane ticket, hotel accommodation is booked. You have a very big investment financial uh, as well as in, in the terms of you actually wanting to go to the thing. So you're more likely to turn up. And unless something dramatic happens in your life so that you can't make it at the last minute, chances are you're going to go. However, if somebody says, OK, we're going to have a live lecture and it's going to be you sitting at home on your computer and it's going to be at nine o'clock UK time on Thursday the 12th or whatever, then that's I think that's more difficult for people to remember to do it and for things not to interrupt them. If it was in my household, um, the chances are the phone would ring or somebody would need me at a vital moment. You're drawn away from the computer. And all right, mostly with these things, you can you can watch them afterwards. But if you want to take advantage of the live nature of them, you have to be there. Now, depending on where you are in the world, that might be very inconvenient. If it's being made in the UK and it's scheduled to go out at 9 p.m., it might be that it's 4 a.m. somewhere else in the world. And so someone thinks, well, quite frankly, I can't be bothered to go up at 4 a.m. in the morning in order to see a live lecture. 
So I can see that there are potential problems as well as potential advantages of having a live environment. I mean, it's like with Penguin, with their live lectures. Um, I don't know whether they still do this, but when they first started them, they pushed very much the fact that it was a live event. And people could, uh, certainly when I did it a couple of years ago, people were able to email in questions about things that I was performing uh, and then I would be asked, Dan Harlan would ask the questions at the time. So that was a way of getting involved. But of course, a lot of people, as I say, don't want to or can't be there at a specific time. So they end up just watching it. Uh, it's a live recording, but they're watching it as a recording nonetheless. So they can't join in. So I'm not, that's why I'm not quite so sure whether a live element is important or not. But I do think that while online learning is not the be all and end all, because I am also uh, a believer in the fact that face to face, going to magic clubs to see lectures and see live people there, going to conventions where they're intimate enough for, for you to really genuinely get something, some interaction perhaps with the lecturer or the speaker, those are important too. But when on a global scale, where you want to get access to information quickly when it suits you and possibly from people who will never even visit your country or your club or your area, then the online is definitely the way to go. It'll be fascinating to see how long these online initiatives last, whether they are going to be something that will burgeon and grow and also whether it's going to undermine club lectures, the live club lecture, where people will stop going to magic clubs even more than they're already not going to them and whether it will also affect attendance at, at conventions because if you can go online to a club and see any of the top people lecturing you know even if you're not watching it live a live recording at the touch of a button then are people going to make the effort to get in the car and drive somewhere it pay you know we will we will see but uh, I think it certainly pays to to keep an eye on this to see whether it's going to be something that will supplement and help magic or whether it's something that will ultimately be um, something that unfortunately takes a lather little bit out of the live event. If you're one of those people who perform a lot of magic, uh, perhaps you're a children's entertainer who does regular children's shows or you're a, a strolling magician or a close-up magician who does regular bookings, then the chances are that your act or acts are going to remain fairly stable. All right, you might introduce the occasional new thing, but basically over the years you, you find out what works and as a result of that you use the same props and the same tricks on a regular basis. Uh, and that's great. But one of the things that I've noticed, uh, and I'm guilty of it as much as anybody else, is that sometimes because you're using the same props repeatedly, the actual props themselves start to get bashed, a bit dog-eared, just look a bit tatty or a bit dirty. But because you are so used to doing those tricks, you, you stop looking at the objects that you're using in a critical way. And I've always tried to stop myself doing this. For instance, just a simple thing like a pack of cards. Uh, I don't use a pack of cards commercially forever because after a while the cards get a bit bent or they get a bit dirty. Um, they, don't, they don't handle or fall as nicely as they should. 
So I will throw a pack away, even though in terms of the pack of cards, if you were playing cards with it, you'd say, well, there's nothing wrong with this. No, but there is, because when you, you fan it, it doesn't spread quite right. It start, the cards are starting to get a bit mucky, especially if you hand them to spectators who've got sticky stuff from food or drink on their hands, and then they shuffle the deck, and then they transfer some of that to the pack. Eventually, it needs changing. But sometimes you, you don't notice that and you keep on using a pack of cards or even the box that the pack's in. I find that the box tends to fall apart or get a bit dog-eared quicker than the pack does, perhaps. And I try to remember to keep back some some other boxes that, say, speciality decks have come in like double blanks or blank faces or whatever and swap the regular deck over into those so that the box itself at least looks nice when I take it out. And it's the same with things like sponge balls, pieces of rope. Those two get dirty. I'm, I'm often amazed. I do Professor's Nightmare for lay people all the time. And I have a, a little set that I carry with me and I use it at, at, when I'm doing tables. And it's a, I think it's one of the greatest rope tricks a walkabout ever invented. Because I'm doing it a lot, the ropes get dirty, but they get dirty very, very gradually. Unless somebody drops one in a plate of gravy, then obviously it's dirty. But... When you hold the ropes up against some rope that's still on the roll that hasn't been used yet, and you look at the difference in colour, you go, oh my goodness, this, the, the ones I've been using are almost grey in comparison to, to the brand new white rope. So changing the props and looking at them in a critical way I think is quite important because we may not notice because we're using them all the time, but I suspect that the audience do especially when you're working up very, very close to people. If things look a bit shabby, then I don't think it gives the right impression. And the same is true of children's props, particularly if, let's say, you, you, you do a lot of preschool work, you're using a lot of wooden painted props or card. Have you ever stepped back and put them on the table and actually looked critically? Notice the fact that there's the little handle of the door, the wooden handle of the door that you open, because you keep on and on opening it and touching it, the paint has worn off. Or there's a chip somewhere else where something's obviously clunked against it and it's chipped the paint off and so on and so forth. And just touching those bits up or even replacing the whole prop if it's really bad can freshen up the way you look. And I think particularly with with cards, large colour printed cards with pictures on, some of those can get bent or they, or they start to look tatty. Then if you use the trick a lot, see if you can buy another set and freshen the whole thing up. Because I think, as I say, although we don't perhaps notice all the time, I'm sure that our audiences do. For me, one of the true joys of magic is trying to come up with new variations on things. I love the process of devising new tricks, new presentations, new methods. And I've done it ever since I was a kid, really. It's, it's been something that I've always enjoyed. And, and initially it was done, I suppose, because at the time when I was young, I didn't have any money to buy new magic. So I tried to invent it and make it myself. But um, that has gradually changed into a business, which is what it's been for the last 36 years, selling magic, selling my own ideas. Uh, but the actual process of coming up with new things... Um, there are a number of different ways that I suppose anybody who's devising new material might use. I know I certainly do. I have a number of different starting points, if you like. But I've noticed in recent times that that starting point has changed. Now, a few years ago, uh, and it's still available, I, I wrote a book called A Simple Guide to Creativity. 
Uh, it's available as an ebook, and it's if you go to my website, you'll find it there. And it breaks down different in, into easy to understand sections the principles behind creating or revising magic that you already do. And I think it's a very interesting read if you're in if you're into that type of thing. So a little bit of analysis without being too intellectual or, or, or too difficult to follow. I've tried to give concrete examples of different ways that you can approach the creation of new ideas. But as I say, that my my own personal uh, way of doing it has changed in in the last few years, and I find myself increasingly using one particular method, and that is. I imagine a plot and then I solve it. Seems obvious when you think about it, but that's not the only way you can do th- do this type of thing. But that's the way that I've, I've found myself increasingly coming up or as a starting point for coming up with new tricks. Think of a plot and solve it. And I realise that the reason why I'm doing this is because I have in my head a very large selection of moves, of principles and things like that. They're they're all available to me. What I need to do is to have a reason to select from this database of principles. So what gives me that opportunity to do it is to think of a plot and think, okay, I'd like to make X, Y and Z happen in a trick. Now, what methods do I know? What gimmicks do I know? What principles do I have at my disposal that I can use to try and create that trick? I won't always reach in the final analysis. It may not be possible to do my envisaged utopian plot, but I will get as close to it as I possibly can. And I think the more that you know, the easier this becomes. And you really can't use this method if you don't have a lot of knowledge because you simply will come up against a, a brick wall too often. But I think when you do have a lot of things at your disposal, and a lot of experienced magicians do, they've come across so many things in their magical lives, that solving problems in this way, almost like a detective, piecing stuff together to make something happen, is a really fun way to do it. And it's a really interesting way. And the way that you come up with first, where you think, well, I'm going to do this, this and this, put these methods together, or this this gimmick with this move to create this effect. And often what will happen is you'll, you'll try it, or you'll sort of go through it, and you realise that, no, that isn't the best way. And then you can go back to your database of, of moves and knowledge, select something different and see whether that works better instead. And sometimes in the course of doing that, the plot eventually changes into something that was completely different from where you started. But at least it gives you the starting point. So if you come up with magic, what's your starting point? There are quite a lot of magicians for whom performing is spoiled by the level of nerves that they feel when they're doing magic for people. Some trick that they, in practice, or at home, or showing family, or somebody like that, they can do perfectly because they're relaxed. If they get out into um, a slightly more alien environment, especially if it's a commercial show where you're being paid, suddenly the pressure is, is somewhat increased, certainly in their mind, even if it's not in reality. And as a result, they get nervous. And as a result of being nervous, of course, often you don't perform as well. And this idea about nerves when you're performing, I was thinking about this the other day, about what it is that causes the nerves. And there there could be all sorts of different reasons why you feel nervous. It could be the environment that you're in, the performing environment. For me, if I 
foolishly agreed to do a cabaret show on a cabaret floor with tables in the dark in the middle of a dance floor that for me is a very stressful situation I don't like it and actually I never do shows on if I can possibly avoid it I never do shows under those circumstances because I don't feel relaxed and I don't perform well as a result there are other environments where I feel extremely relaxed because I've done it so many times before but it's not just the environment it could be that you're underprepared you're trying new tricks that you're not sure how they're going to go. Or there could be lots of other reasons. You're feeling slightly under the weather. Don't feel on top of things. You've had a bad journey. And when you get there, you're, your head's a bit scrambled with all the, the stresses and strains of the travelling. But there's another factor that I, I'm not sure that, as a general rule, we think of. And that is that every time we go out to perform, we're actually opening ourselves up to scrutiny. People are going to be sitting there and we are going to walk up and we're going to not. We don't say this overtly, of course, but we're going we're saying to the audience, hi, I'm a magician. I'm a bit clever because I know stuff that you don't know. And I'm going to do stuff for you now. And hopefully you're not going to know how it's done and you're going to be amazed. That's the fun of magic. I mean, that's why I love it. However, the longer that you do this, the more years that you do this, the more times you've had to put yourself out to this kind of scrutiny. You stand in front of people and actually invite them to analyse what you're doing. And magic is not unique in this, but it but it has an extra, I think, layer of this. When a singer goes out, then the singer is hopefully going to be what they sing and the way that they sing is hopefully going to be appreciated. But they're not trying to hide something at the same time. They're not trying to fool people at the same time. So we are trying to entertain people and fool them at the same time. And so it's a couple of things going on here. And each time that we perform, we're inviting our audiences to sit there, to look at us and essentially to criticise if we're not very good. So as you get older, you start to worry, perhaps, about whether you want to put yourself up for this constant criticism or potential criticism that you want to be evaluated again and again and when you're a strolling magician where you're doing tables or you're doing multiple groups in an evening of course you're doing this many times in one go in an evening if you do 20 tables that's a lot of tables if you're doing a dozen tables in an evening 12 times you've started with a new group and you've had to impress them and make sure that you entertain them properly and they sit there and evaluate you. So I can understand why some people get to a point, and I'm happy to say I have not reached that point, incidentally, that's not why I'm talking about this, but I can see how people can get to a point that go, do you know what, I really don't want to do this anymore. Why should I want to put myself into this position? And I think at that point, some people stop doing shows because they haven't got the energy or the will to get themselves dressed, to get in the car, to drive through the rain and the dark, to get to a venue, for then people to sit there and go, go on then, entertain me, go on then, fool me. So I don't think we think about this very much. I think we think about um, other elements, or so like the nerves and things like that. But we don't always think about this, this process that the audience probably goes through every time we have to entertain. And yet in the back of our minds, we know it's true. And that's why some people, I think, eventually end up stopping performing. In the November issue of Magic Scene, there's, a, there's an interesting article by Mel Mellers about comedy. And uh, he offers a, an explanation 
of how he has gone about creating his own comedic persona and the way that he has structured his comedy performances to make them something more than just a delivery of lines that are funny. And he he talks about it being based on consistent character. Uh, And I really like this because I've always felt that this is the reason why, if you're watching, it doesn't have to be a magician, if you're watching um, a comedian, for instance, you can have one comedian who can give a line or, or tell a joke that is really, really funny and you find yourself rolling in the aisles. Another entertainer could tell the same joke or give the same line and it just wouldn't feel funny. And the reason is, quite often, it's all to do with the delivery and whether the line or the joke is appropriate for the character that you as an audience member perceive that this comedian or, in case of comedy magicians, magician has. Mel has a very specific type of character. Anybody who's seen him, within a few minutes, will understand what that personality is. Graham Jolly is the same. He also has a very clearly consistently defined personality and all the humor that these guys get when they do their shows comes a lot from an expression of these personalities so it's it's not the actual words that they use it's not the things that they say it's kind of like the the attitude that they say them with or the timing or the situation that they create that they then drop the line into it fits it fits them their personality it fits it's consistent and all of their gags and all of their humor lends itself to in a particular way to make it funny and you find this with good sitcoms on on the tv as well they create characters and that's why when you when you watch a sitcom when you first see it you may not find it particularly funny. But as you start to watch episode after episode, you start to find it increasingly funny. And it's not because necessarily the writing is any gets any better. It's not necessarily, although it could be partly to do with this, that the actors themselves get into their parts more. It's just that you don't know initially what the characters' characteristics actually are and what their particular annoyances or or what their particular um, idiosyncrasy is and because you don't know that initially until you've seen several episodes the jokes that are made that that are centered on these particular elements you, you don't know what they are it's only after you've watched a few you think certain characters will say things you think oh yeah that's really funny and it's funny because they are consistent with that and I think as magicians we we sometimes forget that without having a consistent personality and fitting our comedy into it all that we're actually doing and all that we're left with is a series of stock lines and maybe even stock jokes but if it doesn't fit us or it doesn't fit our, our performance and our performing personality It can be the funniest line in the world. It just won't work for most audiences because they won't see it as being a natural thing for you to say. And therefore, it doesn't build. Good comedians get their audience on a roll of laughter and all their humour is of a particular type. It's not wildly different from one moment to the next. It has a consistency. And it's that that builds the rapport between the performer and the audience. 
and they start to appreciate his sense of humour. And that's why also, if you some comedians you like and some you don't, some magicians you like, others you don't, it's because if you tap into their sense of humour and you like it, everything they do, hopefully, if it's consistent, you'll enjoy. But also the opposite is true. If you really don't like their sense of humour, you don't like their delivery, then everything that, if it's consistent, everything that they say, you're probably not going to like. But consistently is definitely the key, I think, to having a successful comedic personality. Ever since my business went entirely digital in the way that I uh, sort of deliver my products to customers through only through download, I've been some of the items that I had, the products that I had originally, which I supplied with the props, I had to remove because I, I'm not physically sending anything through the post. But of course, a lot of them I've been able to bring, I'm gradually bringing them back because the actual props themselves are very simple, are easily available. And so I'm changing the, the way that the instructions are delivered to you as the customer into a download format. And over the last few months, I've been bringing back a number of tricks. The latest one that I'm just sort of re-releasing, if that's the right word, or reintroducing is Safety Catch, which is my um, way of taking a borrowed watch, which uh, if it's a sort of leather strap one is done up in so it's in a so that the straps in in a sealed loop you take a piece of rope which is examined you tie the ends and the watch penetrates onto the tied loop of rope it's very visual and it's a great trick for walkabout actually because you can do it up close you can do it at a table side you can do it in a parlor show you can do it in a close-up show it's very versatile um, there is a knack to being able to do it smoothly but the, the actual moment that the magic happens is very magical if you do it right. And I think using someone's borrowed watch is always a good way to go. So I've brought this one back. Uh, it costs £10. It's a premier e-routine download. So it comes as a, as a downloadable PDF instructions with colour photographs. And there is also a link on that to further online video footage, which you can download and keep and help to learn for you to learn it as well. So that's the latest one that I'm reintroducing as from November, and that's called Safety Catch. As a strolling magician, although a lot of my work commercially is entertaining at private parties like adult birthday parties or at weddings, family occasions, Christmas events and so on. I also do a lot of work for businesses too. Some of it is trade show work where I'm at exhibitions helping people to promote themselves. But there are other things too, like such as product launches and office openings and, and a lot of other sort of business related events which I think for a lot of magicians, well, they won't, don't even realise there's an opportunity there. And one of the reasons why they don't realise is because they don't mix with the local business people in their area. Basically, they're relying on somebody thinking they're having a, like a car showroom, having a, a launch of a new car and thinking, hmm, we should get a magician in to mix and mingle with the, with the punters while, before we do the unveiling of the car. Whereas you can be a lot more proactive if you join, and I'm sure every area has them, one of the business networking groups that have sprung up all over the country. There are lots of different formats, lots of different types. I go to one particular type. Uh, it's called the, the, the Business Network. And there are, there are two um, sort of places in my local area where they have once a month a two-hour... It's actually a meeting over, with a meal, so it's over lunchtime. 
Um, there's one in Exeter where I actually live and one in Bristol, which is a big city about an hour and a half up the road from Exeter. And I've been going to these networking groups for about 20 years. And I have got an incredible amount of business related work from going to them. It takes a bit of effort. It does take cost because there's a joining fee and usually a, a fee to attend on each individual meal that you come to. But not only does it help you to put yourself in front of potential customers and all these various business events that they're doing, not only does it, it tell them that you exist, but it gives you a lot of information about what businesses in your local area are up to. If you don't talk to these people, if you don't know what they're doing, if all the only networking you ever do is amongst magicians, then you're missing out on a huge area of potential work. And joining a local network group, whether it's 4N or it's BNI or whatever it is, is a way, if you get the right group of people on a regular basis, to get yourself in front of important people. And don't forget, not only are these business people who have business events, but of course they are humans who have families and who have weddings. And so it, it, for us as magicians, it's a fantastic opportunity to actually talk face to face with people. And I think it's one of the best ways to get business, whether it's social, but certainly for business that there is. And I'm surprised more magicians don't think of it and do it. Well, there we are. That's another podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you uh, have a good month ahead and I shall look forward to talking to you again in December. Bye for now.